I called the sister. We're going to meet at Monticello's. I said, no, they're going to kill me. So this is a story of my arrest and brief incarceration, which I generally don't talk about. You know, people say, you know, oh, this is the affirmation of life. The after It looks like somebody was murdered. Okay, now, for real, we're going to start our second storytelling event at Beaver Falls Coffee and Tea Company, featuring our local color, Jim Adams, Craig Bennett on guitar, Scott Colburn, and Kevin Farkas. We all have a story. And I thought if I told you my story, you'd tell me yours. You are listening to the Social Voice Project Podcast Network. Where are the stories? Where are the lessons? Telling a story well is an important skill. Engage your audience. Build the scene. Build tension and release tension. Focus on what's important. Keep the flow logical. All right, go ahead. Try to tell a story. Okay. I believe that in order to learn how to tell stories, the best place to start is how to tell your own story. So your story of who you are and why you're here. Tell me a story. Well, I don't have any stories that would be appropriate for you today. Then tell me something inappropriate. What is the price we pay as a society when we misuse storytelling just for profit? We're talking art instead of science. Mm -hmm. And there's a problem when you're trying to science the out of something. We all know how gut-wrenching some of these stories can be. That, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. Yeah. Mm, mm, mm. Let us know in the comments. I'm really curious what people will say. Tell me a story. I got married in my early 30s. Unfortunately, it didn't last too long. And anything I say about the other party, Shirley and Jess, we're on speaking terms now. So my, I called her my evil ex-wife, and the only reason I call her evil is because she's evil, anyway. Um, but, uh, well, she wanted to leave and she left, and um, when she left, she was pregnant, and then she didn't want to get back together. And when the baby was born, she let me see him for a while, and then she said he wasn't mine. I knew that was a ploy. So I, uh, after a couple of years, I went down to the courthouse to uh, do the DNA. A lot of guys try to get away with a situation like that, and I want to fulfill my obligation. I, I'll try to look at everybody. <laughs> oh, we have the reason now. <laughs> and and um, so uh, I didn't expect to blow Trump's a roll out of red carpet, but I pretty well got kicked in the teeth. And I ended up with uh, nobody. They took it all. And... Um, I really wanted to get her cooperation on this. I did, I did the Solomon thing. I didn't really want the fight over the child. I wanted her, her cooperation. I sent her letters and faxes, and, and she played all kind of games. And well, let's move on to the, we just move on to the future. It just years went by, I was very sad. I tried the different, I tried to fax, I tried to talk to her. I even did, I was gonna do, like, you ever see Mrs. Doubtfire? Doubt, I was gonna do Santa Claus, to dress up like Santa Claus. <laughs> see him and we did do a ploy one time where i had a friend of mine call her and act like he was from the pittsburgh pirates selling tickets to her insurance agency and of course she said i can't afford that he said we'll sell you we'll send you a couple tickets so we did pirate letterhead we sent tickets so i knew right where she was sitting 
<laughs> so uh, that didn't work too well. So anyway, um, time goes by, and my dad is a trucker, and I, leave, I get a message in 2007, and it says, your ex-wife's in the nut house. Ben wants to see you. Okay, so I, so I called uh, his, her sister, found all the letters, because she really vilified me, and, they, and her sister found out it was a lot of lies. So I'm going down to meet him, driving down, and I'm thinking, I called the sister, we're going to meet at Monticello's. I said, no, they're going to kill me. This is some sort of thing where they have, you know, I, something's going to happen. I don't know. I, I just, you know, I was, all oh, thoughts go through your mind. But I went down there, and there was men. And uh, he says, so you're my dad. And I said, yeah. And then he, he, he found out there were some falsehoods. And he um, really uh, right away called me dad. And we took him up to meet uh, my parents. He called him grandpa. You know, we hit it off pretty good. Now the ex-wife is in the hospital. So when she got out, he didn't tell her that we were communicating. And we were like communicated on the sly. It's like an affair, you know, you're just on the sly here. And uh, so finally she found out and then uh, he said, oh, there's some legal thing that you're not allowed to see me, which wasn't true. And the CYS just says, no, you know, and then I got to see him and it was all, you know, all good. And um, one of the first times I was with, it was July 3rd, 2007. I said, uh, well, son, I said, you know, we haven't been together a while. I said, you know, this is a joke. I said, I think I owe you a lot of spankings, don't you? And he says, yeah, but I'd like to have that $15,000 of back child support. <laughs> and I said, you're my kid. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, so anyway, eventually, uh, so I was visiting weekends, and eventually she was um, hospitalized, and um, I got full custody. And at that time, she said she's going to forgive the back child support which I always pay, but I didn't pay, you know, I pay like half. So the courthouse guy says, I said, what do I have to do to get this taken care of? He said, oh, just have her sign it, you know, write a letter and sign it. I said, that ought to forge her name years ago if I'd have known that. No, just kidding. And uh, so I took the letter up there and he said, what did you do to get on her good side? I said, well, I bought her a color TV and gave her a scarf. I neglected to tell him that she was in the psych ward heavily medicated. I thought I'd just leave that out. But she did the right thing. So I had him full time and my... Uh, my friend Mark says, you should go after child support. I go, Mark, oh, come on. She just gave back $15,000. He goes, it's a knife fight, Jim. He was pretty bitter about his divorce and the fact that he paid like $80,000 in child support. I said, no, I'm not going to do that. So, so we had a good relationship. He's a very well-adjusted kid. He's uh, bought his own house at age 24. And I uh, worked at Comcast, basically the same business as me. I did satellite TV. He did Comcast. And my brother said, like father, like son, I said, no, Ben is very, he pounds on doors. I pound like five doors, get rejected. I'm in the Biff Cat drinking coffee, okay? <laughs> or back in the old days, I'd be at the bar. But uh, so he, he's a very hard worker, got his own house, you know, well-dressed. He's going to go to college. He's working at uh, Home Depot right now. And um, I walked into the McDonald's one, or not McDonald's, the Dunkin' Donut. And, um, and I went in there, and there was my dad. Was sit, friends were sitting there, and I said, yeah, I said, my dad's a hardworking man. My son's a hardworking man. Not that I can say the same for myself. And uh, I'm kind of an underachiever. Um, me and my family were talking about fear one time. Fear of snakes, fear of heights, fear of water. I always had a fear of being a failure. My brother said, you are a failure. And I, said, I said, yes, but I've overcome it. I'm well adjusted. And uh, one time at the bank, my, she froze my accounts. 
and the lady at the bank says, well, you know, if you were paying your child support, this wouldn't happen. Well, I wasn't paying because of the issues. And I said, listen, I told her the story. She says, well, I don't want to hear your story. I says, no, you watch Law & Order? You open the door to this lady. You're going to hear the long, sad story. So whenever you see these things, like maybe you see a guy that uh, is, uh, you know, that they're after or whatever, you got to hear, you can't just assume, you know, there are guys out there that are deadbeats that aren't, don't want to, you know, don't want to take care of their kids, but I was all for it. So, uh, so his name's Ben. And um, like I said, he's 25. So that is the renewal story that I have. Oh, my. 
How you doing? I'm Scott Colburn. I uh, live and work down in El Equipa. Didn't realize this was going to be a podcast. That's awesome. So this is a story of my arrest and brief incarceration, which I generally don't talk about and never talked about in public, but uh, it happened. So uh, I'm going to talk about it now and it will be recorded for all posterity. Hey, so uh, in 1995, I was 28 and uh, in the doldrums. I was uh, 10 years out of high school and six years out of college and uh, not living the life I had intended to live. Uh, I was working uh, at a mall bookstore that doesn't exist anymore called Walden Books and uh, uh, reading as much as I could and trying to write the great American novel and was working uh, with some friends who were Christian friends uh, who would take me under their wing in their arts center. And I was, it was a community arts center down in the Baltimore suburbs. And we did a lot of puppetry and a lot of creative writing in children's uh, theater and a lot of community theater. And so I was writing a lot of plays that got to be produced and that was really exciting and fun, but I wasn't writing that novel. And uh, instead, I was writing things like uh, we did a uh, musical, The Book of Esther. Uh, I had the big song, uh, You Babble On, about the Persians. And uh, then later, uh, a couple years after that, I got to write a uh, play of a a one-man show about George Washington and his false teeth that was actually commissioned by the National Museum of Dentistry in Baltimore. Uh, may have two surprises there. That one, that there is a National Museum of Dentistry and that it's in Baltimore, but it was, it was on the campus of the University of Maryland at Baltimore, not far from where Edgar Allan Poe is buried, and uh, no, no coincidence or causation there. Uh, so I was living at home, and, which is never a good idea after you're out of college, and, and not really becoming an adult yet and and having all these things that I was doing but thinking there was supposed to be something else I figured it would probably be marriage and and kids but it never got there and so I was really just sort of sinking down into self-pity and I didn't even realize how much this was affecting my friends but fortunately uh, my friends loved me so instead of kicking me out of their art center or whatever they they came to me one time and they, they said you're driving yourself nuts, and the unspoken, and also us. Uh, and uh, so we, what we want you to do is think of a dream. What's your dream? What do you want to do? You know, you just want to do this the rest of your life. What do you want to do? And so my thought was uh, to go to grad school. I'd thought about seminary. I'd thought about being an English professor or history professor, all these different things, but they seemed very far off and a lot of work and, and delay and delay and delay. And I'd already been out of college. And, and so I just sort of threw up my hands and said, I'd kind of like to start a used bookstore. And that was in late September. And by December 2nd, we started, I started Stone Suit Books. Uh, the friends that helped me with it, uh, that helped me think it up, also helped me with it. Uh, Beth, Uh, They were a married couple, Beth and Alden, and Beth actually came up with the title of Stone Soup because they had done a play of the story of Stone Soup. And if you don't know the story, it's basically, it depends on how you look at it, it's either a story of cooperative economics or a con story. Uh, Either way, uh, it's about a guy who convinces people to help him 
uh, with his dream of making dinner. And so he gets people to donate. He puts in the stone into the cauldron, stirs it around and says, stone soup is the best thing, but you got to have carrots. And so somebody has carrots and you, it's even better with beef and somebody has beef and, and eventually he gets a whole stew going and then he takes out the stone and eats it or in different other tellings of the story, there's enough for everybody. So there's, there's different visions and, and I guess it, it's one of those things, how you tell it shows who you are. But I started it, and all my friends helped, and uh, Alden was a painter, so he painted the sign, and he also painted a picture of the stone soup uh, story uh, with me as the guy stirring the pot, and uh, it was very exciting. So Beth helped make some really awesome curtains. I went around and started collecting more books. We made some shelves. I found a tiny little uh, two-room place that I could actually live in and also have the bookstore in the front. And uh, on the main street, the antiques row of this little town and uh, went and got the business uh, license. And I was amazed how easy it was to start up a book uh, store. So I was Scott Colburn. Uh, was it trading as trading as uh, stone soup books and got the whole thing going, got a little adding machine and all those little slips to write on and started do did what little I could in the way of uh, publicity and got it going. Uh, just in time for Christmas, 95, had a grand opening. It was very fun. I settled down to become rich and mostly sat around reading all my books and, uh, and then had the store open mostly on weekends and found out very quickly that, uh, just because you open a little business doesn't mean anybody cares. And also, uh, the businesses also reveal just like storytelling businesses reveal who you are. And it turned out I wasn't a good boss. Uh, I was very lazy, and I was very uh, interested in doing things uh, other than that which uh, the business called for. Uh, so I worked really hard at, at my idea of what would work uh, for a while. And then, of course, uh, after a while, I didn't have to go out looking for books because once people know you have a bookstore, they start dumping books on you. And uh, so all these family Bibles and 1950s medical guides and Reader's Digest condensed books and, and, uh, and yearbook things from uh, guideposts or whatever, all these things would show up on my doorstep and I would eventually have to waste gas going over to the county landfill for most of it. But I also got to uh, meet some really interesting people. And so I kept the store going for a while. And then tax season rolled around and I couldn't quite figure out how to integrate the, uh, the, the income from the place with my other income from jobs that I was doing. I was working as a carpenter's assistant. and I also had the money from the, uh, from the art center doing puppetry and theater and stuff. And uh, couldn't quite figure it out. And then there was also, you had to do an inventory every year, and I couldn't figure that out. And so I didn't ask anybody about it. And so I just sort of fudged and did what I could and paid the taxes and kept going, kept going. And then, uh, you know, a, a year or two later, this guy showed up. And I didn't know who he was, but he showed up and, and he started asking me questions and, and, uh, he started asking me about my business license. And I was like, oh, you know, I, I got one when I started and he's like, but did you renew it? And I was like, renew? No, I didn't renew it. I, I had to sing with the inventory and blah, blah, blah. But well, you know, so he wrote me a citation for not having a current business license. And 
I sort of shrugged it off, kept going, and that's what I do when I'm in trouble is I just keep going and pretending it's normal. So after a while, I got started getting stuff from the government, and pretty soon I realized I actually had to go to court about this, and I didn't think it was that big a deal. So I went to court without a lawyer, just sort of went there, and judge asked me stuff, and I said, yeah, yeah I, I kind of did that, and uh, didn't renew my business thing, kept going. And uh, and so I had to do a, uh, a uh, plea guilty and got a PBJ, which sounds peanut butter and jelly, but it's uh, probation before judgment for a misdemeanor count of operating without a business license. And I felt such shame at that and, uh, and, and it was so stuck and I couldn't talk to anybody about it that I knew because there was a shame of, uh, of not following the rules, which my whole life was about following the rules or at least g getting away with, you know, following most of the rules. And uh, so I kept, I kept going because at this point the, the bookstore was where I lived and it was sort of what I did. And then uh, in 98, a couple of years after I'd started it, uh, the church that owned this building was uh, going to expand and make it the youth center. And, uh, and so I had to move. And so the people across the street invited me to move over there, and they actually had an even nicer space. There was this old couple. They lived—they weren't a couple, excuse me. They were old brother and sister. They were both in their late 70s, and big, tall people, like prairie people. But uh, in Maryland, it was really strange. The, the brother was this very tall, beefy, very gay chauffeur guy uh, named Martin. Really nice. He reminded me of like a, um, a, a built Vincent Price. And, uh, and his, his sister was this very, uh, very tough old lady that looked like she was going to outlive everybody. And they were really nice. And, um, and so I, I had half the building and I lived in back and had my bookstore and just kept going and kept going and, and, and didn't think about the, the bookstore, the problem with the uh, license. So eventually, uh, flipped to 2000, in November 2000, um, some of you remember that time. It was a sort of rough time after the election that, uh, that never ended. It was a Monday night. I was coming home from my uh, men's group at church, and I, I had this sort of scorched pan that I had made this awesome moosewood cookbook uh, onion curry potato soup but I'd put too much uh, flour in it or something, and so some of it stuck to the bottom. So I was I was thinking that I had to get that cleaned, and I went inside, and I didn't see across the street in the church uh, driveway was a cop. And so he came across and knocked on the door, and when I answered, he put me under arrest because they had a bench warrant out because when I had moved, I had not gotten the mail from across the street telling me that I had another uh, infraction of the uh, of this another citation and uh, for still being open without a business license so uh, I had to go to jail so he took me down to jail and there was this brief uh, negotiation uh, where I sort of asked what I should wear <laughs> it's like I've got nothing to wear for jail so he he uh, he advised me to to leave my belt. I wouldn't need it, and to make sure I had nothing uh, nothing on me that, that I shouldn't have on me. Uh, and he wasn't sure whether I ought to take out my um, uh, shoelaces for my shoes or leave them in. And uh, so we had this brief discussion. I finally got in the car and and went down to jail. And of course. Again, the shame and the, the fear and the feeling that my whole life was over at this point. And so I got to jail, 
and they they set they handcuffed me to to a uh, rail and let me sit for about four or five hours and finally they put me into a uh, cell in a, hopefully none of you all have been arrested but if you have you probably also know that the worst part isn't that they treat you like a criminal it's that they treat you like an object you're you're there to be processed they're not even mad enough to like treat you like a you know especially if you didn't do anything violent they don't really even treat you like a bad guy they just treat you like a furniture like an animal that has to be sort of moved around and so i sat there and then finally they put me in jail and there were a bunch of other guys in jail and uh they had these sort of cells that were open and then a big open front space where you could walk around. And the guy in my cell was uh, this young African-American guy, and and he wanted to talk politics. <laughs> and I usually love talking politics. I'm sort of a political junkie, and this was right after the Bush-Gore election that wasn't decided because of the Florida and the hanging chads. Some of you younger people may or may not remember this, but uh, it's a big deal at the time. And usually I would have loved to have talked it, but I had so much on my mind, I really couldn't talk politics with this kid. And he was he was disappointed. So he went to sleep. I couldn't sleep. I was up all night just pacing and pacing and thinking what was going to happen. And, and my life was over and I was going to have to actually tell people that I'd been arrested. And uh, finally morning came. And I guess I'd slept an hour or two. But morning came and they served us the worst breakfast I've ever had. You know, sometimes you go to a restaurant, you get a bad breakfast, but it's made from good ingredients. It's just badly made, right? They cooked it too long or they it was dry or whatever. This stuff was made just of crappy ingredients. And so, and, and it just tasted like almost nothing. You know, it, it almost would have been better to eat the plastic that it came in. But we didn't have time to worry about that because we had to get in the van and go to go to the uh, arraignment, I guess, or whatever they call it. They had to go to court. So they gave us all these these little chains to wear on our hands and our feet and our and then I I did feel like a bad guy finally. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm being treated like a prisoner, you know, and uh, instead of an object. And uh, and they were very uh, efficient about getting us in and out of the uh, van. And I had to sit there on the bench with all these guys. And uh, and almost all these guys, there were six or seven of us in the van. And all these guys were um, child support guys. And that's all that they had. They've been also caught on bench warrants about child support. And, uh, and, and it just seemed like such a waste of time. You know, the one guy who, who, who didn't renew his business license and, and all these other guys who were a few payments behind or whatever. And, and the, the force of law and armed men were used to, to get us. And I was, part of me was just like, this is so absurd. And then part of me was also looking out the back of the window at the traffic behind us and wondering if I knew any of those people. Um, because I had been working as a carpenter's assistant, and so I was always driving all around Baltimore uh, in the mornings, and, and so this, in a way, seemed normal. So they brought us to court, and fortunately, uh, I was the first guy up, and the judge sort of looked at me strange, like, what are you doing here? And uh, just told him the story, and then they let me go, and I realized I didn't know where the court was. I had no idea where we were. In fact, I wasn't even wearing my glasses because I had to leave them in a little envelope with your personal effects. Uh, so I called my brother and said, well, I'm at the courthouse, but I don't know where it is. And he said, well, is there a street? So I looked outside and there wasn't really a street. It was somewhere in the suburbs and uh, no idea where I was. But he found it and picked me up. 
And, uh, and it occurs to me as an aside that uh, I think that should be part of our, our high school curriculum is teaching people what to do if you're arrested. Where is the courthouse? You know, what, sh- what should you wear? You know, stuff like that. And uh, we, we talk a lot about how, you know, they ought to have classes and how to write a check or change the oil. And I agree with that. But I think also what to do when you're arrested uh, would be a good one. You know, and I'm sure the same arguments would be as, as are against sex education and drug education. Well, then everybody's going to go get arrested. Um, but I don't think that's really true. So, uh, so a couple months later, well, at this point, this was in November, I was still running the bookstore. And in fact, after this, you would think I would just shut down the bookstore. But that would mean that I would have to tell people why I was shutting it down. So I kept it going, <laughs> even after being in jail, because as I said, when I'm in trouble, I don't know what to do. I just keep going. And so I, I kept the bookstore going on the weekends, and then I, I realized, and I had realized this anyway, this was five years after I'd opened it, and it really wasn't much of a business. It really wasn't had no point to it, and I really didn't want to be arrested again. So I, I announced that I was closing, and I closed at the end of the year, and, uh, and after that, continued to live in there, and I lived in there for another five years, so it was kind of fun living in a, an old bookstore. Uh, but then in February, I had to go to court again. Uh, and so I went to court and this time I did bring a lawyer. I had this friend, uh, this blind friend of mine that I used to, uh, he was in grad school, I guess he was already had a law degree, but he was getting some other degree. So I used to go over and read, uh, some of his books into a tape recorder and we were just friends and hung out. And, uh, so he actually came with me as my lawyer. And then when I was there, I met this kid that I had uh, gone to his bar mitzvah back in like 81, in 80 or 81. He was a year behind me in junior high school named Keith. And Keith was a lawyer now. And so we had sort of a reunion with Keith and, uh, and he thought it was absurd that I was there for the reason I was there. And I thought it was strange that he was a lawyer now. He was all this mouthy little kid. And uh, he still was, I guess. And... Uh, also, at the, um, at the very last second before my court date, I finally got those uh, business uh, licenses renewed. I went and I paid whatever the tax or the fee was, uh, and I did all this stuff for like the three or four years that I hadn't renewed the business license. I finally did, and it was the last day, and I still had no idea what any of the paperwork meant, but I, I pulled through it, and the people helped me, and they... they for them, it was so small potatoes, and and that's sort of one of my problems. That problems that really are small potatoes look like a huge, huge mountain of of trouble to me, and uh, and so I finally was able to tell the judge that I had uh, that I had in fact paid all these fines and paid everything and renewed and shut down the the business, and so the judge let me go. So that was that, but. Um, this uh, sort of hung over me for years because now I figured my life was over. I was unemployable uh, with my criminal record and uh, didn't want to tell anybody. And so about five years later, I finally uh, answered the call to seminary and came up here to uh, Ambridge to go to the seminary down there. And while I was there, I had to start telling people about it. I had to tell my uh, the people I interviewed that I had a criminal record. They didn't care. And uh, then I had to tell my friends from the puppet thing that that uh, that I had that in my past, and that um, was harder because then they realized that I'd been lying to them all those years by not telling them about it in the first place. 
and that was tough. And uh, and then in 2010, I was up in Chippewa at the Census Bureau up there working in the office, and it came up again because I had to explain on the application that I'd had a criminal past, and uh, nothing happened. I got hired, and then three months later, in the middle of the census, they fired me. They didn't fire me. They suspended me for a week and a half while they investigated it, which I had already explained, so they didn't really have to investigate so all these things sort of kept renewing these problems of and this judgment and the fact that I couldn't let go of it. So it's been about almost 20 years now I think I've let go of it. Um, I have no idea if I applied for certain jobs or if I ever tried to get ordained. Uh, I got the degree and never got ordained, and instead I'm working as a missionary uh, down in uh, Aliquippa at a coffee shop down there. And uh, I have no idea if I try to get ordained, if that's going to come up again, and I'm going to have to explain it all. But uh, the last thing I would like to say is that uh, as a missionary down in Aliquippa, one of the things I do is a jail ministry. <laughs> so I go to jail every Sunday. Uh, and uh, and fortunately, they let me out. Um, and uh, and I love it down there. We te- we just do a you know, Bible study, and, and I still think it's the biggest waste of time to spend put nonviolent people in jail just because so you know I, I try to help help those guys renew their hope and renew their commitment to getting out into having a life afterward because I've found out that it doesn't have to keep hanging over you and you can have a life afterward that's my story of renewal Maybe I'm just feeling old 
Like a lawyer, no one to blame I'm headed home Yeah, but I'm not so sure But home is a place I still get to by train So I'm picking up our things And we gather the cold Your eyes are where you carry the pain Crying to the sky, it's really my southbound train. Thank you. So I went to college years ago in a little town like Beaver Falls in New Mexico called Las Vegas, and it's a little school, like just like this, about 2,000 students, very small, and it was the summer after my freshman year, and I was walking across the quad, and a buddy of mine stopped me, and he said, uh, hey, did you hear? Larry Taylor died. Get out. He says, yeah, like I'm kidding you. Said, he said, no, Larry, Larry Taylor died. He was killed on his motorcycle up on Route 104, out around the 19-mile marker. No kidding, I said. Ah. Oh. Now, Larry Taylor was a character, right? And every campus has a character, you know? He was just a colorful kind of guy. He looked like Charlie Daniels, if you remember that guy, you know, the, the country singer. Gruff, always wearing a, a big old cowboy hat and big long hair hanging out the back. And, you know, always wore like a jean jacket or leathers, you know, and, and, and his boots. And was always, you know, walking around campus like that. Hey, Larry, how you doing? He was from Texas. It wasn't from New Mexico. But he had this Texas drawl. Hey, he would say. Hey. Larry was a good guy. And we all loved him. It was very sad that I found out that he died. So, you know, that kind of bums you out. So I stayed on the quad, and I talked to my friend a little bit, and I said, hey, you know what? I have to go home. My wife was, ex was expecting. She was going to have a baby at any time this summer. So I had to get home, you know, just to, just to be there. And uh, so when we moved to this little town, you know, this town used to be called Smack City, USA, for the heroin that was there. And it was a place where, the, where like, the hippies came in the 60s and the 70s. I mean, real hippies, like commune-living hippies. And they never left. So my wife happened to befriend all the hippies in town, and they were always over at our, our house and just hanging out. And these were people back from the, uh, the Chicano movement. In fact, they took over the university at one time, and they threw out all the Anglo administrators and got uh, you know Hispanic administrators in there. It was a radical time. All these hippies were around, and you know I walked in the house, and I'm just you know bummed out about Larry Taylor, and uh, and there they were, cloud of mota in the air, you know. And there was one guy there, I never forget this guy. Every time he, he would see me, he'd go, La Raza, the people, La Raza. What a character. So he says to me, not shortly after I walked in, he said, hey, look what I brought. And he pulls out this big jar, and it's a big jar. It has this gray mass in it. And I said, what the heck is that? And he says, this is sourdough starter from my abuelita. It's 92 years old. You know, and if you know anything about sourdough, you, you can feed this starter for this bread. And if you just continue it, it, it'll never die. So he brought from his grandmother this big jar of sourdough starter. He was 92 years old. That's the kind of guy he was. Hey, man, you got to try this. I told your wife all about it. And she's going to make some sourdough bread. Okay, great, great. 
And then he says to me, hey, uh, what are you going to do about the baby? And I said, well, um, I think you all convinced my, my wife to have this baby at home with a midwife, right? That hippie kind of thing, you know? Uh, he says, yeah, I heard. He says, what are you going to do with the afterbirth? And I said, afterbirth? I said, I don't know. I haven't given it much thought. But, you know, then I started to think about it. Oh, yeah, that's going to be in the bed, right? What are we going to do with this afterbirth? Uh, have you ever seen afterbirth, right? It's... You know, people say, you know, oh, this is the affirmation of life. The after it looks like somebody was murdered, right? This this uh, mass of um, this biomass, I guess. So he says to me, "What are you going to do with the afterbirth?" And I said, "Man, I have no idea." He says, "Are you going to eat it?" I said, "Eat it? Are you kidding me?" He says, "Yeah, they eat it on the commune." I said, "You kidding me?" He says, "Yeah, that's the affirmation of life." Well, how do you eat it? Well, some people fry it up and they just eat it. I said, "I don't think I'm going to be eating it." He says, well, you could do what a lot of people do, like the Navajos. They bury the afterbirth at the doorstep, right? It's sort of like this portal of life. And so they bury, they take the afterbirth and they bury it there. But I said, well, gee, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I should take it down to the hospital, to the bio unit and dispose of it. And he says, well, you're going to think about it. Do something with it, man. It's very important. La Raza, it's the affirmation of the people. Okay. So my son was born at home. And there was the aftermath, the afterbirth, the aftermath of the afterbirth. And so I didn't know, really know what to do with it. I wasn't ruling out, I ruled out the eating of it. I didn't rule out burying it, though I was afraid of the dogs in the neighborhood digging it up. But I said, you know, I'm just going to put this off. So I put it in a big salad bowl and I put foil on it and I stuck it in the fridge. What do you do with that stuff, right? And so <laughs> as days would go on, I would get in the fridge, move the jar of sourdough off to the side. There's that metal bowl. I'd look in it every once in a while. Oh, eventually I have to deal with it. So this, this is just days, right? Not, not weeks, you know. But, you know, the whole experience with my son was just beautiful. It really, really was beautiful. You know, it was, I have this beautiful picture of him. He's four days old. And, you know, uh, those babies, they're still, they still have that, um, that crimped up kind of uh, body. You know what I mean? Like if you stretch them out, they go right back to this little fetus position. I have this beautiful picture. Louis lying on this carpet and the sunlight is streaming through the window. And he's in this little fetal position, this little bare uh, body. You know, just a beautiful, beautiful thing. It's, it's a real treasure, that time of life. What was also a treasure in my life was school. This was back before computers and all that sort of stuff. We had to go register in person, right? Every beginning of every semester, go down and tank registration with paper, and we would register for our classes. Well, in the summer, there would be this little catalog that would get mailed to us, and it would be all the, the courses for the year coming up. That was always exciting to me. You know, I, I just loved being a student. So I got the book, you know, and it was like, Oh, man, look at this. What's going to be here? So I flip it over there, you know. Oh, history, you know. Uh, the mountain man throughout the Southwest. Oh, I want to take that, right? Flip it over, English. Oh, here's, here's a course on Chaucer. Oh, I want to take that. Flip it over, Department of Mathematics. Mm, past that, right? Oh, here's philosophy. Now, philosophy, I ended up being um, a philosophy minor. And our philosophy department was so small that it was only run by one person. And this person taught all the courses. And this person had been there for 20 years. PhD, head of the Texas New Mexico Philosophy Association at one time. A, a big ac academic scholar in philosophy. So I said, ah, oh, philosophy, this is, is going to be interesting. Because I had taken one course my very first semester as a freshman. It was uh, Philosophy 101. 
And my very first textbook that I ever bought was this textbook called, What's It All About? Big grand questions, you know, what's it all about? What's it all about? So I really liked philosophy, and I so I, I turned to the philosophy department, and I'm looking down the list, you know, and there's like about 15 courses being offered by this one professor, uh, continental philosophy, comparative religion, Camus, and the absurdist, right? And they're all taught by L. Taylor, Dr. L. Taylor. Dr. Larry Taylor was my very first professor, and he was so impactful in my life. When he died... That was not just losing a friend, it was losing a mentor. So back to the story of the afterbirth. I'm looking in the fridge, afterbirth. The hippie comes over, what are you gonna do with that afterbirth? Man, you have to do something important with that. That's significant, man. I don't know what to do, and then it hit me. Larry Taylor was killed up on Highway 104 19 miles out of town. Now, Las Vegas sits in this little valley. There's the southern tip of the Rockies, and there's this valley, and then the plains, if you go east out of the town, the plains just build and build and build up over this big mound. Just over that mound is marker 19. Well, that's where Larry was killed. And I said, you know what? I'm going to take this afterbirth, and I'm going to go find that spot where Larry was killed, and I'm going to bury it there. My way of saying... This is symbolic of renewal. So I got in my car and I, I drove out there. And this was during the monsoon season in the summer. And in, in New Mexico, in the southwest, the moisture comes up from the Gulf and it circles around through the southwest. And these massive big thunderstorms happen like clockwork starting around midday or so and throughout the afternoon. And then when they leave in the late afternoon, it's gone. It's blue sky. It's beautiful. So... When I started off to find mile marker 19 up on Route 104, it was a thunderstorm, and it was just black, and it was just raining, and now I'm driving up there, and it's like, oh, boy. I finally get to the top of the hill. The clouds start to dissipate a little bit. I find the mile marker, and I see the skid marks right on the blacktop, the skid marks of Larry's bike, and I see this big old mass of upturned dirt on the side of the road, and I figure, well, this must be it. So I got out of my car, had a shovel. So I found this little juniper tree and I dug this little hole and I took the salad bowl and I emptied it out into this shallow little hole and I covered it back up. And I walked back to the car and I just leaned back on, this, on the hood of my car and I just thought about things for a while. And at that moment, and I don't necessarily believe in these kinds of things, but at that moment, the sun broke out behind these clouds. And not just broke out, I mean, I looked up and there was a knife's edge wall of black divided by blue sky directly above us. I said, wow, is that a sign? It was remarkable. So that's where I buried my son's afterbirth. And I often think about that time that I honored Larry Taylor for his impact on my life, personally and professionally, with the gift of renewal. You are listening to a production of the Social Voice Podcast Network.